Marshall did an outstanding lesson last week on just a theology of worship. In fact, he did such a fine job, I thought, well, you know, maybe we should just sort of continue in that, continue to explore worship uh, um, from a theological standpoint. But um, uh, actually, the, the overall intent of this series of lessons was to just take some of our great hymns and examine them theologically, kind of examine and study the scriptural basis for these words that we sing. Some of you, uh, if you're like me, have been singing some of these hymns in our hymnal all your lives, and maybe you spent many years singing those uh, words, not really realizing the biblical basis for some of what you were singing. You know, some of uh, some of the meaning of even words and phrases and expressions in some of those hymns, like "Here I Raise My Ebenezer." How many of you sang that hymn year after year after year and had no idea what an Ebenezer was, or where the theme came from, or what the concept came from? Um, well, that was me. Uh, so I was right there with you. So what we're going to do today is we're going to do Crown Him with Many Crowns. There's another hymn that I really had a strong desire to unpack with you. Uh, but number one, um, it wasn't a, uh, it's not one of the more commonly sung hymns. And number two, this is a hymn we're actually singing today. This is one of the ones that uh, Pastor Mark chose for our liturgy today. So it's going to be our second hymn. One you all know quite well, I'm certain. Um, so we're going to examine it together from Scripture, talk a little bit about the history of the hymn also. But uh, let's begin uh, by going to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for bringing us here. Lord, we thank you for the change of seasons. Even when the change of seasons sometimes brings uh, cloudier weather, uh, we thank you for the cooler temperatures. We thank you for replenishing the earth with rain. We thank you for your faithfulness uh, in every way. And thank you for bringing us here together this morning in this place. Thank you for providing this place. And as we study one of our great hymns, one that we're going to sing this very morning, if it be your will, uh, we pray that our uh, increased understanding of the, the scripture and the truth of your word that's behind the words of, these, of this hymn would enable us uh, to worship you uh, better to worship you with, with all of our minds, with all of, all of our souls. So we commit this time to you. We thank you for it. We thank you for providing your church with hymn writers and composers to write tunes to which we can sing these hymns. And so uh, let us use these gifts that you've given uh, for your praise and glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the first page of your handout... Uh, you've got a little introduction to this hymn, just information about it. Uh, the name of the author uh, of the hymn itself is Matthew Bridges. And, it, and this um, uh, graphic on page one, you'll recognize probably from our Trinity hymnal. It's the, very, uh, it's, um, the very same thing you're going to see when you turn to hymn number 295 this morning in worship. And so down below at the bottom on the left-hand side, it says Matthew Bridges. And with every hymn in our hymnal, and we, if you were with me when I did a, uh, a sort of a lesson on the Trinity hymnal, you may remember some of this content. But if you go to any page in our, bullet, in our hymnal and, um, and look down at the lower left for any of the given hymns, the name you'll see down below on the left is the name of the person who wrote the words. And technically speaking, the words are the hymn. 
the, the melody isn't the hymn. That's the music that we sing it to. But the hymn itself consists of the words. So, for instance, John Newton, Isaac Watts, when they wrote hymns, they were writing words. In most cases, they did not write the music to their hymns. Some, a composer, a musician wrote the music. The hymn writer wrote the text, the words that we sing. And so Matthew Bridges, in this case, is the hymn writer. Uh, he was an Anglican minister, at least for a time, and he wrote actually six stanzas to this hymn. Um, there's some uh, uh, less favorable, less, uh, less pleasant information about Matthew Bridges that I just didn't bother to include on the, uh, on the handout. It turns out Matthew Bridges was, was part of a, a movement that was trying to connect the Church of England back to the earliest roots of Christianity, Sadly, in the process of trying to go that route, they ended up going back to Roman Catholicism. So Matthew Bridges eventually left the Anglican Church and became a Catholic, uh, Roman Catholic that is. Um, but uh, another uh, Anglican minister came along. Um, I think I put his name on the uh, handout. Did I? Godfrey Thring. And uh, he wrote six more verses. And the version that we sing in our hymnal, or that we have in our hymnal, and that we typically sing, is sort of a conglomeration. It's mostly Bridges' text, and then the last half of the last verse is actually from Thring. Um, and then over time, the hymn became so popular that they... Uh, I don't under quite understand the logic, but it was so popular that they condensed it. <laughs> Uh, so they, they reduced it down to these four verses that we most commonly sing, the ones that, uh, that are on your handout here. Now the tune, if you look at the lower right, you see those capital letters, all caps, diademata. Uh, and in this case, as with all the other hymns in our hymnal, the, the capitalized word or words there, that's the title of the tune. So crown him with many crowns is the words. La, 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 that's a song, that's a tune called Diademata. Put whatever words you want to, it's still Diademata, get it? And the composer of Diademata is George Elvie, uh, who was an English organist. He actually served the royal family uh, for a time as a court musician and, and organist and so forth. So there's the hymn. Now if you flip the page over and look at page two, where you have verse one of the hymn, now we're going to try to get into the, uh, the scriptural basis for this hymn. <clears throat> so in verse 1, when we sing it, uh, the first words out of our mouths as we sing praise to our God are, Crown him with many crowns, the Lamb upon his throne. Matthew Bridges, the hymn writer himself, uh, said that he drew his primary inspiration from Revelation 19.12. So take your Bibles now, because we're going to do a lot of running around our Bibles looking up scriptures and reading them because there's great power in the Word of God and I think uh, as we visit the scripture that forms the basis for these things that we're singing I think it really has tremendous uh, potential to enrich our worship when we sing these hymns. So Revelation 19.12 uh, I'll back up this is one of my favorite passages from all of Revelation um, follow along in your Bibles and I'll start reading at verse 11 then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. 
and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. Okay, so there's the, the idea of many crowns. A diadem is a crown. That's why that tune name is diademata. Um, and the reason we have a distinction between like a, well, what's the difference? Anybody know the difference between a crown and a diadem or why they would make that sort of distinction? Anybody? Um, sometimes the word that we see translated crown in our English Bibles is the Greek word stephanos, which is where the name Stephen comes from. Um, and it means a crown, but it's referring to that crown of, of laurel leaves that they would award to someone who wins a, a, an athletic competition. So like if you're competing in the Olympics in the old days, the winner receives this crown. Um, which is also why, um, you know, Scripture talks about the crown that we're going to receive when we enter into glory, and it's a crown that doesn't fade away. Because you can get, win the gold medal in the Olympics and get your crown, but those leaves are eventually going to wither and it's going to, you know, it's going to decay, uh, as opposed to a, a, a crown made of gold maybe that wouldn't necessarily decay, or at least not as fast. A diadem is specifically a crown that a person wears who is in some kind of authority, a king. So you can still call it a crown, but more properly it's a diadem, and that distinguishes it from that wreath of laurels that a, that a champion or a winner would receive as, a, as an award. Um, so when it says um, here in our uh, ESV text, on his head are many diadems, speaking of the rule of the Lord Jesus Christ who's being depicted here. And he has not just one crown, but many crowns showing the universality of his authority. Um, and so that's the verse that really kind of stirred Matthew Bridges up to compose this hymn, to write this hymn. Uh, and remember, if, you, if, if you're still in Revelation, turn back with me to uh, chapter 5. Uh, would somebody read Revelation 5, 6 for us? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the, are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Thank you. So uh, what I want us to key in on is John, here, here's the interesting thing. Um, he, he'd been weeping because no one was found worthy to open this scroll. He was grieved. He was heartbroken that the scroll couldn't be opened. And then someone says, he hears a voice that says, don't weep. The lamb or the, the lion of Judah, look at it with me. Um, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So what John hears is, there's the lion, the lion of Judah. He can open the scroll. But then when John turns to look, does he see a lion? No, he sees a lamb. And he sees a lamb as if it had been slain. So that's great imagery, great language. And of course, obviously, it speaks of our Savior. Um, and that's what gives, again, again Matthew Bridges the, uh, the fuel for this uh, line. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. Um, if you do a really careful study of Revelation, um, there's only one place where it really describes the Lamb as being seated on the throne. Uh, usually he's described as being uh, there with the one who's seated on the throne, because this Revelation will say over and over again, the one who sat, sits upon the throne and the Lamb. So there's, there's on one hand, making a distinction. Um, but we, of course, know that the Lamb is Christ. Christ is King of Kings. He's seated on the throne, at least in the, th in the sense of his authority. And there is that passage in um, 
Revelation 7, 17, where it says the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. So I guess all that to say, don't get too tripped up by the fact that Revelation never really specifically says the Lamb is seated on the throne, because He is. He's enthroned. Any questions about that so far? Okay. Next uh, lines in the hymn, Hark how the heavenly anthem drowns all music but its own. Wonderful imagery of a, of, a, of a chorus of praise that's so powerful, so overwhelming, you can't hear anything else. And uh, we could take that from, if we go back to Revelation 19, another thing that John saw and heard. Uh, would someone read um, Revelation 19, verse 6 for us? Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Thank you. And you've had opportunities, I'm sure, to hear the voice of a great multitude speaking all together. People in the military certainly have, right? You've heard a great, a, a great company of soldiers or Marines where they're lined up in a in a battalion formation or something, and then they and there are certain things that they'll say together on command. You know, they might chant their unit motto, or they might uh, what you name it. But you know what it sounds like when a whole big group of people speak together with with big voices, uh, with loud voices. And John heard something like that. He heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. It was such a overwhelming sound. He said it was like this roar of many waters. Think a, a, uh, a huge waterfall and how overwhelming the sound of that can be. And this is what it sounded like, but, uh, and like peals of thunder, he says. And so that's the kind of music, that's a, that's a song he's hearing. And, um, and you can understand how that would, that would completely drown out anything else. And so in response to that, in response to the sight of the Lamb on the throne, and this, uh, uh, this amazingly, overwhelmingly loud song of praise that's being sung, the hymn writer is stirred up to join in praise. And so he says, Awake my soul and sing of him who died for thee, and hail him as thy matchless king through all eternity. Just wanted to pull up one example of how uh, in Scripture, the psalmists in particular sometimes will stir themselves up or, or call upon others to praise the Lord, and they'll use uh, language like awake. So in Psalm 57, verse 8, would somebody read that, please? Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. So yeah, the, the, the psalmist, is, he's, he's encouraging himself. He's, he's stirring himself up for worship. And that word glory in your ESV Bible is probably a footnote. Uh, meaning when he says, awake my glory, uh, he's saying, awake my whole being, uh, awake my soul. Uh, so that's verse 1. Already just one verse rich with scriptural themes and content. <clears throat> verse 2, and, and I'll just mention this uh, at this point. Uh, verse 2 is, crown him the Lord of love. Verse 3, crown him the Lord of peace. And verse 4, crown him the Lord of years. So what Bridges did was uh, stuck with this theme of the Lordship of Christ. And so each verse is describing him as Lord of something or some uh, aspect of, of our lives or of the redemptive story. 
So verse 2 begins, Crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands inside, rich wounds, yet visible above, in beauty glorified. Uh, so these wounds can be seen still, but it's not like a wound that's been freshly received, something that's still bleeding or something. These, these are the wounds that Christ bore on the cross, and yet he is risen. He's got his, his glorified resurrection body, and so those wounds are, are beautified. Uh, I didn't put this on the handout, but I think, you know, we all have wounds. We all have scars on our bodies and certain even maybe defects in our bodies, those will all be gone in our resurrection bodies when we rise again on the last day. Our bodies will be made perfect, just as our souls will be made perfect. Um, but Jesus keeps those particular wounds because they, they will speak throughout eternity of his atoning death in our behalf. Wounded hands, wounded feet, wounded side. So let's um, turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, Jesus had appeared to the disciples uh, once already, but there's one disciple who wasn't with them when he appeared, and that was Thomas, doubting Thomas. And um, so in John 20, verse 25, the other disciples told Thomas, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the hands, see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then, Thomas, then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not, be, do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. So Jesus is risen. He's got this glorious resurrection body, but the wounds are still in his hands. Still got the hole in his side. And so that's where the hymn writer gets that notion, the idea of rich wounds that are yet visible. Um, no angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. Here I think he's borrowing from Isaiah. It's pretty clear that he is. Turn with me to Isaiah 6. Several of us had the privilege, I guess it was uh, Pastor Mark and, and Ron and I heard a wonderfully edifying sermon on this passage at Presbytery just a week ago or so. And yeah, it was a really fine sermon. One of the things that made it even better was we've probably all heard many, many sermons on Isaiah 6, haven't we? But this guy comes to this text and he just really preached a rich, preached a rich and... Um, uh, very, very encouraging message. But um, in Isaiah 6, at the beginning of the chapter, this is what Isaiah proclaims. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Okay, now these seraphim, they're one of the highest orders of all the angels. They're kind of considered to be like God's special attendants. Um, 
they may even be equated, can't make this case necessarily, but you know, when you get to Revelation, you got these four living creatures and their description is so bizarre, that may be seraphim. I don't know. But um, anyway, here's, here's the description. They have six wings, and they're only using two of those wings to fly. What are they doing with the other, uh, other four? Well, with two of their wings, they're covering their feet as if to express their unworthiness. And with two of those wings, they're covering their eyes because the sight of the Almighty God is too much for them to bear. And so that's why uh, he writes this line, No angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but he downward bends his burning eye. What does it mean by burning eye? I don't know if it's like the... the at least the, even the partial sight of God causes his eyes to burn, or if it's that the seraphim, the, the word means burning ones. That's what the seraph means, burning one. So these seraphim are creatures that are on fire, in a sense, with holiness, with zeal for God. Um, now, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, I want to, um, I want to assert to you, if, if you haven't heard this already or... Um, this hasn't been presented to you. He was seeing the second person of the Godhead. He was seeing the Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate. How do we know that? Well, turn to John 12. John 12, <clears throat> verse 41 he had just in verse 40 and, and also in verse 38 quoted from Isaiah 6. And then John goes on to comment after the close of the quotation from the Old Testament from Isaiah's prophecy. John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. When Isaiah was writing, he was speaking of the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, our Savior. I think just considering that has a lot of potential to elevate our, our thoughts of Christ and of His glory and, and His might. Because there, long before the Incarnation, long before uh, this child was born uh, and this son was given, uh, Isaiah saw Him there on His throne, where He's always been and where He always will be. That brings us to verse 3. Crown him the Lord of peace, whose power a scepter sways from pole to pole that wars may cease, absorbed in prayer and praise. Great poetry. Uh, but, you know, great poetry is only so good if, it's, if it doesn't have scriptural basis, right? And there's a lot of great poetry out there that's riddled with lies or has no uh, real power to edify. But this is, these, are, these are great edifying words. Um, so he calls him at the beginning of this verse the Lord of Peace. You remember in Isaiah 9, 6 where it speaks of the child that's to be born and the son that's to be given. One of the names that he'll have is the Prince of Peace. Um, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, somebody read that for us, please. Second Thess 3, 16. 
So there Paul refers to the Lord as the Lord of Peace. And so we're talking Lord of Peace, Prince of Peace, um, both titles fit. I think, uh, remember when I pointed out the, the parallelism between each of these stanzas in the hymn, when he's Lord of this, Lord of that. And, uh, so he keeps the word Lord there rather than saying, crown him the Prince of Peace, which would have worked just fine, I suppose. But um, um, so Christ is uh, the Almighty. In uh, Sunday school, I mentioned that Greek word pantokrator. He's, he's all-powerful. And uh, his power is superior to all other power. Romans tells us that there is no authority except that which is from God. Every authority on earth is exercising authority that was delegated by the Lord God himself. And so God and our Savior Jesus Christ have, have power over all things. That's what that line there um, means when it says, whose power a scepter sways. How do we use the word sway? What does it mean to sway? You know, rock back and forth. Influence. Huh? Influence. Influence, right. Yeah, so if, if we speak of a person who's easily swayed, we're talking about somebody who's influenced rather easily or can be drawn away to one side or the other. And... Um, so it's describing here in verse 3 uh, the, the, the great power of our Lord Jesus, His power who sways a scepter. What's a scepter? Yeah, it's the symbol of a king's rule. So a king, if he was sitting on his throne, he might hold this, this uh, stick, a rod, staff of some kind. That's his scepter, and it symbolizes his authority as the, as the monarch. And this verse, as we sing it, is saying... Uh, yeah, you got a scepter, you're a king, that's great, but hey, uh, my Savior, the Lord Jesus, can just sort of move that scepter aside. That's how great his power is. His power, a scepter, sways. Uh, in just one place of the earth, just certain regions? No, from pole to pole. And because he's the Lord of peace, through him, wars may cease. Uh, let's look at a couple of these scripture passages that I've got on your handout. Turn to Psalm 2. And if you uh, haven't read the Psalms on your own recently, I encourage you to do that. Do it on a regular basis. And as you do, you start with Psalm 1. When you read Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, those two Psalms really form the foundation of the whole Psalter right there. But in Psalm 2, this Messianic psalm, <clears throat> look at me beginning at verse 8. This is the, the Father speaking to the Son. And he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. So his power sways scepters from pole to pole. Uh, turn to Psalm 72.
and verse 8. Would somebody please read Psalm 72, 8 for us? Okay, that's just language that's intended to be all-inclusive. All the nations of the world, uh, the ends of the earth kind of sums that up. Now go with me to the prophecy of Daniel. The first six chapters of Daniel are narrative. They tell the story of Daniel and his friends who were deported to Babylon. And that's where you have the, the fiery furnace. You've got the lion's den. And then the second half, 7 through 12, are all these really amazing prophecies that in a lot of cases are really difficult to understand and for us to make heads or tails of, but we can pretty easily make heads or tails of this. Uh, Daniel 7, verse 14. Would someone read that, please? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be Thank you. So the extent of the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ here is described in terms of, um, of its reach, which is peoples, nations, and languages, and also its duration, that it shall not pass away, it shall not be destroyed. Now, back to Revelation, please, chapter 21. Revelation 21, follow along with me, starting at verse 22. This is John's, uh, he, was, he was showing a glimpse of basically the kingdom of glory. It's New Jerusalem. It has come down from heaven, and God is in the midst of his people. And so in verse 22, it starts by saying, uh, John says, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you see the, the duration of Christ's kingdom and the glory of it and how he himself is its glory. Now in the same chapter, back up to verse 3. And, and this is glorious too. It, it's, uh, it's very moving, very stirring. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That's where we really have finally the, uh, the fulfillment of wars shall cease they won't ever fully or finally cease until that kingdom is ushered in. We already kind of dealt with the next line, his reign shall know no end. Uh, but since we've got the time, we can go ahead and look at these verses. Because again, 
in the scriptures where the real power is anyway, right? So Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had made this really crazy request. He says, I want you to tell me my dream and its interpretation. And all his wise men said, okay, king, tell us the dream. We'll interpret it for you. And he says, no, you need to tell me not only the interpretation, but tell me the dream too. Because if you can't tell me the dream, then how do I know whether you're even giving me the right interpretation? And so along comes Daniel. God brings Daniel in, reveals to Daniel this dream that the king had dreamed, and he gave him the interpretation. And in response to that, this is what Nebuchadnezzar says, Daniel 2.44. Uh, I'm sorry, not, that's not, this is not what Nebuchadnezzar says, but this is the interpretation of the, the king's dream. He says, In the days of those kings, God will, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. His reign shall know no end. And round his pierced feet, fair flowers of paradise extend their fragrance ever sweet. Now, where do you find that in Scripture? Well, the answer is you don't ever you don't find that anywhere exactly in Scripture. But what you find, that's why I said on the handout, it's, it's poetic language. He's, he's a hymn writer, he's a poet, he's taking some liberty, but it's liberty that's uh, founded in scriptural truth. So turn with me to Psalm 72 again. Uh, this is also one of the great messianic psalms, and these are sort of uh, benedictions, really, upon the Messiah. Somebody please read Psalm 72, verses 6 and 7 for us. Okay, so what kind of imagery does that evoke in your minds? Like refreshment of rain in spring? Nourishing, Just, rejuvenating, life bringing. There you go. Okay, so, and frequently, uh, messianic uh, prophecies, messianic. Um, Benedictions like this one uh, have language like that that speak of, of fruitfulness of the ground, which is, uh, which is a benefit and a blessing in itself, but it symbolically speaks of the fruitfulness and the prosperity of God's people. Luke chapter 1. We'll be spending the time there before too long once we get into the Advent and Christmas seasons, but let's get a little preview. Luke chapter 1. This is, what, uh, this is what the angel said to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. 
And then it's been a while now, but when Pastor Mark first began to preach through Hebrews, and we were in the first chapter, we came to this verse. But of the Son, he says, Hebrews 1.8, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Right, so his reign shall know no end. I'm sorry, I, I kind of skipped back, didn't I? Um, well, anyway, uh, you got this poetic language uh, where the blessings of the Messiah are described in terms of flowers coming up, in terms of fruitful crops, and, and, and all that. Um, let's see, what time is it? Okay, I guess uh, we've got time. Let's, um, let's turn to 2 Samuel 23. As we go along, if anybody's got questions, please feel free to chime in. Second Samuel 23, would someone please read verses 3 and 4? Thank you. Okay, so you see that imagery. And, and these are things that will result from a person who rules justly. And of all people who rule, who rules more justly than the Lord Jesus himself? And so his rule, his reign, will bring forth this fruitfulness. And uh, uh, again, there's no specific reference or translation of the word as flowers, but when the scripture speaks about grass sprouting, I think lots of times implied in that is that that grass will be flowering. But... Uh, be that as it may. Um, Psalm 92, let's go there, and then we'll get to verse 4. Would someone please read Psalm 92, verses 12 through 14? Thank you. I love that description of fruitfulness. And, and one of my favorite hymns actually is, a, uh, is based on Psalm 92. And the last verse says, The righteous man shall flourish well, and in the house of God shall dwell. He shall be like a goodly tree, and all his life shall fruitful be. Love that. And that's the imagery that this hymn is picking up on. That's a great question, and right, we'll see him as he is, yes. Well, that is a good question, because, for instance, in that passage where uh, the prophet Micaiah, when he's prophesying against uh, King Ahab, and he says, uh, he's, he's, he had a vision. He saw the Lord on his throne, and the angels, all the hosts of heaven were gathered around him. It doesn't say anything about them talking to him like this. But I think the, the intent of the passage is really what's, what's, um, what's relevant. And, and I think Isaiah's vision was intended to portray the absolute glory of 
Almighty God. And that's why these angels that are his closest attendants can't even look directly at him. Whereas in the vision of Micaiah, he, God is holding court in a sense. You know, and God, uh, Jesus is proof of this. God has the ability to kind of um, tone down the, uh, I don't know, shall we say, the, the, the manifestation of his glory so that, uh, so that people are able. Moses Behold the face of God. God even says he speaks to Moses like, he sp like a man speaks to his friend, face to face. So uh, not to be irreverent or kind of, uh, don't take this to be saying something it's not intended to say, but it's, it's like kind of God dials it back so that he, we, he can be accessible to us, which is ultimately what he does in Christ anyway. He come, took flesh and dwelt among us. So I don't know the answer to that question. I'm sorry. <laughs> Um, good. Uh, verse 4. Crown him the Lord of years, the potentate of time. What's a potentate? Ruler. A ruler. Right. And um, so he's the ruler of time because he doesn't even dwell in time. He, he made time. You know, before God created the heavens and the earth, there wasn't any need for time. There was just eternity going that direction, backward. And, and you know, God had no, I don't think, any sense of the passage of time because there wasn't any. But he created the heavens and the earth and he created time because we dwell in time. We're bound by it. Um, Job 36, 26. Does someone have that? Okay, so that's Job's way of saying he dwells in eternity. We, we could try to search out the number of his years, but they can't be discovered. Good. Uh, then back in Psalm 90, verse 2, someone, please. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you had formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Okay. From everlasting to everlasting. Any photographers in here? Uh, my son, is, our older son, Sam, is a photographer. And on a, on a really nice lens, you know, you can adjust the focus on the lens, but then you go to the end of the uh, range of its focus, and there's a little symbol. It looks like an 8 turned turn on its side. That means infinity. God dwells in infinity that way. He dwells in infinity, eternity that way. Um, he's the potentate of time. He dwells outside of it. Second Peter 3.8 says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. In other words, time doesn't really make any difference to God. Makes a huge difference to us. But he's outside of it. He's not bound by it. Uh, the verse goes on to describe him as creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime. Psalm 8, 4 is where the psalmist says, When I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you put in place, those things were created by God, along with everything else here on earth, down below. Genesis 1, 16 is where God created the great lights. He created the sun to rule the day and the moon to rule the night. Also, he created the stars. Now, um, in, um, in Matthew Bridges' original version of this verse, the last four lines, the second half of verse 4 was different. 
uh, what the, uh, the people who sort of condensed Crown Him With Many Crowns did was they took the end of one of um, Thring's verses and switched it out so that it would make a, a fitting conclusion to the hymn. And, and uh, doxology, of course, does make a fitting conclusion to the hymn. All hail, Redeemer, hail, for thou hast died for me. Thy praise shall never, never fail throughout eternity. Um, so, many years ago, I was, uh, I was at my parents' house, and I was standing in the kitchen, and I found a program from a concert. My, uh, my mom and some friends had gone to see the Texas Boys Choir, and one of her friend's sons sang in the Texas Boys Choir. And I was looking through the program, and one of the things they did was a, was a setting, a choral setting of Crown Him With Many Crowns. And I started looking at the verses, because I was used to seeing this in, in my hymnal, you know, four verses, maybe five. There's another verse that maybe some of you are familiar with. It's not in our Trinity hymnal, but perhaps you've sung it. Well, I'm looking at the words, because they printed the words to crown him with many crowns in this program. And there's like 12 verses. I thought, this is odd. I've never heard these other verses. So I started reading them. And... I was imagining these boy sopranos soaring on the melody and these younger men uh, singing the tenor and the bass parts and accompanied by an orchestra, maybe even an organ, and I started reading these verses and I was getting goosebumps. So I gave you a few of them. This is still not all the hymn, the whole thing. But listen to these verses as, we'll, as we close up, okay? <clears throat> Crown him the Son of God before the worlds began, and ye who tread where he hath trod, Crown him the Son of Man, who every grief hath known that wrings the human breast, and takes and bears them for his own, that all in him may rest. Crown him the Lord of life. This is one maybe you've sung before. You may recognize this. I, I, I was familiar with it. But, uh, Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave, and rose victorious in the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died eternal life to bring, and lives that death may die. Crown him the Lord of heaven, enthroned in worlds above. Crown him the king to whom is given the wondrous name of love. Crown him with many crowns as thrones before him fall. Crown him, ye kings, with many crowns. For he is king of all. Any comments or questions? I have a question. Yes. Um, when you said the tune yeah. was was modified or something like that, does that mean that tune is used in other with other words, or is that just a name of in the fifties that just recorded? Well, um, what it means is, and I think it is, yeah, there's at least one other hymn. Uh, in our hymnal that uses that tune. So on that hymn, you're going to see a different author, whoever wrote that, or maybe it's from the Psalter or something, and then Diademata will be the same tune. I, I'm blanking out on, I think, at least one, maybe two others are to that tune. And um, as we talked about in that uh, lesson on hymns, you see it says Diademata and then SMD. What that means is the meter of this hymn is short meter, and the D means it's doubled. So you can take any short meter hymn and sing two verses of it within one verse of diademata, if that makes sense. But you've got meters that are, it doesn't? Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
So anyway, but yeah, it's the tune, and it's kind of like, um, you know, it's been said that you can sing, uh, what is it, uh, Amazing Grace to the tune of Gilligan's Island, you know, because the meter is almost identical. You can take an ama Amazing Grace, uh, one of the best-known hymns, maybe the best-known hymn in the world, it's common meter, CM, meaning it's got, um, let's see, eight syllables, then six, then eight, then six, four, stand four lines per verse. And you can take any hymn, words that is, that are written in common meter and sing them to Amazing Grace. It's just like your hand in glove, you just exchange this tune for that, these words for that. Uh, good question. Any other questions? Ron. Um, the only question I had was about uh, the Lord seeing Moses. Um, well, that's a, we could do a whole Sunday school lesson on that, I guess, because there's at one point where 70 elders of the, of the Israelites go up on the mountain with Moses and they eat up there, and it says they saw the Lord. Uh, and, but then, as you said, when God reveals his glory to Moses, he, he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. He covers him there with his hand, like our hymn says, and he passes by and he declares his name. Uh, but when it says that uh, no man has seen God, nor can we see him, I think the, the point in that passage is that God's essential nature is not visible to us. The only reason we can see him at any point, the only reason anyone has seen him, is because God chose to condescend and manifest himself in some form or other to a mortal being. Um, which again, he did preeminently uh, in Christ. When, when God, the Word, was made flesh, and he came and dwelt among us, he bore our sorrows. Yeah, there's that. And, you know, like I said, Marshall's lesson last week was just fabulous. Uh, but as I was listening to him, I thought of stuff that, as a musician, I kind of want to inject into the conversation. I decided not to because that wasn't really, it wouldn't really have enhanced the lesson at all. But um, I think you're right, Jeff. Sometimes just reading a hymn is, can be more edifying than singing it. And yet we sing it. Sometimes, here, here's what I find to be really interesting, and it helps bring out the, the, uh, the richness of, of hymn texts, is if you take a hymn and sing it with a tune that you're not used to singing it to. You, put it, you, you, you impose upon it a different tune, and then the words come out just almost differently to you. You, 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 you get nuances or you, you see things, you hear things as you sing them that you didn't hear when you've been singing it to the same tune for 10, 20, 30, 40 years. But yeah, the, the, sometimes the music gets in the way, and I'll be the first, you know, I, I love music. Uh, I wouldn't have majored in it if I didn't, but uh, 
You know, music can can be a help. Sometimes it can be a hindrance. I think one way to counter what Jeff's saying in our own hearts is to study the hymn before we sing it. That's why we send these out each week. Um, it ought not be that the first time we've ever thought about what a word means is while we're singing it in corporate worship. We ought to have studied it um, and have our hearts sort of ready to proclaim those things. I think it's far more meaningful to our hearts and probably more honoring to which is a great advertisement for the Thursday email that goes out, which Heather so expertly puts together. And she includes all the hymns, and there's always a link to each of those hymns, and you can go and you can hear it, you can see the words. So the, the, avail yourselves of the opportunity to prepare. Your, I think your, your, your worship will be enriched by it. You mean like when we sing? <laughs> That's funny. And I imagine that is absolutely true for, for some people. For me, it's the opposite. But, uh, but, you know, we all have our burdens to bear, don't we? Let's, let's close with prayer. We're over time. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to study a, a, a great work of art, a work of poetry, and uh, that, that one of your servants, uh, by your grace, was able to give to your church. Father, we pray that you'll be with us now as we ready ourselves to enter into worship, and we pray uh, that we truly would worship you in spirit and in truth. And that our minds and, uh, and our souls would be more focused than ever before uh, upon you and giving you the glory of which you are so worthy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.